All right, if we could all grab a seat. It's good to see uh, people be welcoming and talking to each other, and it feels weird to make you stop because it's part of the point of church is the fellowship, but good to be with you. Uh, real quickly, this afternoon is our annual business meeting. That's at 2 p.m., and we do want to say that child care will be provided. So if you are wanting to come and you have a child, uh, you can drop the child off and child care will be provided at 2 during the annual business meeting. So uh, looking forward to that. If you're not a member, I believe this is announced, but if you're not a member, we'd love to have you still come. It's just a good opportunity to see what we do as a church, and uh, we'll show you our finances, which is sometimes boring depending on who you are, but it could be really interesting. Uh, God made people different ways, so uh, if you're one of those people, that's it could be really interesting. But um, yeah, that's at 2 o'clock, so go grab food. You can eat out in the gym and come for that. Uh, it's always a good time. We call it our celebration meeting because we, we get to celebrate what the Lord did during the year. If you would like to, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. It was not 200 years before this that the Greeks came into Israel and began uh, trying to take over uh, what the people had recently re-inhabited. Uh, during the Hasmonean Empire, the Maccabees were prolific and Part of this is where we get the history of Hanukkah is uh, during this Maccabean revolt. Uh, the Greeks came and they tried to take down uh, the Jews. And one of the ways that they would do that is they would assimilate the Jews into Greek culture. And for the Jews, you know, uh, one of the characteristics of their being followers of God is that they have very specific customs that they follow. Uh, Old Testament is littered with all kinds of examples of how the Jews were supposed to be different from all the other nations. One of those characteristic marks was the mark of circumcision. Uh, And so the Greeks came in, and uncircumcised people, and began to impose on the Jews their regulations and their rules. Uh, And it was to the effect where there was severe punishment for the Jews for not obeying uh, the Greeks. And the Lord provided in miraculous ways and Time would fail me to tell you of all the stories, but some of the things that happened were the people just committed to being faithful to the Lord. They still circumcised. They still uh, lit the lamps in the temple. They still uh, were just obedient to the Lord in every area of life. And their faithfulness was rewarded by the Lord in this covenant of obedience under the Mosaic Covenant uh, by them chasing out the Greeks and retaining the land. So in some ways, their faithfulness ended up resulting in uh, further blessing from the Lord. This is some of the cultural context I don't think we get when we jump into Acts chapter 16, but I think that it's important to keep in the back of your mind that the Jews weren't just stingy and weird about circumcision. They were obedient and faithful, and the Lord had blessed them through this. Uh, this was a, a mark of the difference in peoples. And so when we jump into Acts 16 and this circumcision issue comes up, think in the back of your mind, their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents experienced some of these things, and it was significant for them to be faithful in this way. Point number one in your notes, Paul is intentional and purposeful when it comes to winning people to Christ. Paul is intentional and purposeful when it comes to winning people to Christ. 
Acts chapter 16, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Time out. This is not the first time he's done this. Can you think of another time? Well, you guessed it. It's in Acts chapter 14. Uh, and Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra. Uh, and in Lystra, there you go, Acts 14, verse 19. Uh, Paul has a very unfortunate experience. And Paul, imaging some of that very same faithfulness that the Jews did uh, during this Maccabean revolt, Paul was faithful as well. And he got stoned for it, dragged outside the city, left for dead, goes back in and keeps preaching. Now you see Paul come back to this area a second time and look at the fruit from Paul's faithfulness. Paul comes back to Derby and to Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Uh, If you spent any time in Awana, you know his mother and his grandmother's name, Lois and Eunice. Uh, That's something we go over in Awana frequently. But it's in 1 Timothy, that's where we get their names. Lois and Eunice, this uh, really genealogy of just faithfulness of uh, Timothy's family. People followed the Lord and they, they worshiped him. So Timothy, his father was a Greek, which would make his father a Gentile. And his mother was Jewish and a believer. Uh, That would make her a Jew, because she's Jewish. Uh, And Timothy, by birth, would then be Jewish. Yes, very good. Uh, That was kind of a trick question, but some of you got it. He would be Jewish by birth. And it would be in this area that Timothy was born where they would have known, hey, eight days passed. How come Timothy wasn't circumcised? What happened? He was spoken of well by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, neighboring cities about 20 miles away. Uh, These would be very close-knit church communities. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I've read this and wrestled through Acts 16 several times in my life, and uh, it never really clicked until this week when I was studying where This is such a significant deal for the Jews, uh, that Timothy be circumcised. Now, uh, those of us who um, have studied other of Paul's writings, there is a significant book written by Paul before this event occurs. And the, the book is called the book of Galatians. And in the book of Galatians, if you didn't have a problem with this yet, let me cause a problem. In the book of Galatians, let's go to chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there with me. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to look at this excursus of this uh, issue that Paul makes here in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul wrote this already. He said this to the Galatians. Uh, Let me give you a little bit more historical context to help uh, better understand maybe why he would say this to the Galatians and still circumcise Timothy. The Galatians were not a Jewish people. The Galatians were a Greek people, uh, Gentile people by culture. Uh, And so to instill circumcision would be to instill syncretism in some way where they'd be mixing religions. They wouldn't just be believers or followers of Christ. They'd be believers and also Jews. Uh, Some of the Galatians, uh, the Jews in the area, believed that you needed to be proselytized to Judaism before you became converted to Christianity. Proselytized is just the uh, Old Testament way of saying becoming a part of the Jewish community. Um, That just was not the case, and Paul got fired up about it. In fact, in a couple of instances in Galatians, he gets really intense that he's like, this is not a significant issue. Stop having people be circumcised. Stop dragging people away from the truth of the gospel. There is freedom in Christ, not bondage. Paul gets intense about that. But I have another question for Paul because Galatians 5 seems to say that. And then Galatians 2, if you turn back a little bit, if you think of Paul's prodigies, you think of Timothy and you think of another man whose name uh, is also a book of the Bible, and it comes just after Second Timothy, and his name is Titus. Very good. His name is Titus. Now, Titus is not a Jewish man. Titus is Greek. Uh, so our conclusion would be that Titus would not have been circumcised either. So what does Paul do with Titus? Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and stepped before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, so then we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Titus, unlike Timothy, was not circumcised. Now, I've already given you a few keys to why Timothy was circumcised, but let me just take this one step further on the opposing side and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with you. Another one of Paul's writings. Only, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the, call, the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And then he concludes with this, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul seems to be pretty strong against circumcision, and yet Timothy is taken in and circumcised. 
Now, you might be asking yourself, why? And Luke, in the writing of Acts, doesn't give us the why. And in part, I don't think that that's his purpose in recording this. But I'd like for us to piece together a little bit more culturally to understand, why does Paul circumcise Timothy and not Titus? It seems like if he's trying to have them thought of well by outsiders, that circumcision would be the way to go, to be able to reach more people in different ways. Let me give you a reason really quick, and, and a concluding reason that I found very insightful, and I, I don't know, I got kind of excited about it in study. So let me give you this one, First uh, Corinthians chapter 9. Paul had a philosophy of ministry that was intentionally sacrificing and engaging with people of diverse cultures, religions, um, experiences, and different places. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel. Then I might share with him, with him in its blessings. Paul had a heart for people who might have stumbling blocks or walls of opposition to the gospel. For the Jews in uh, Lystra, it would have been a stumbling block for them. To have seen Timothy go to the ninth day and not be circumcised. By culture, by association, uh, the thoughts of their great-grandparents and what they went through, the deaths and the sacrifices they made. And for Timothy not to have been circumcised would have been hard. See, they thought of him well among the believers, but some of the Jews in the region would have been hard to reach. So Paul takes Timothy and he circumcises him. And then there's this little key that I think we see in Paul's letter to Timothy. So if you'd like to turn there, it's 1 Timothy. We're going to go to chapter 3. Your Bible Rolodex should associate that in some ways with the qualifications for overseers, and you would be right. Overseer is another word for elder, uh, which is another common term to refer to. People in the early church as pastors, pastor, elder, overseer. Paul gives some qualifications. I'm going to start in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace to snare the devil. Paul wrote this later to Timothy, closer to the end of his life. But he gives us a little key. Timothy needed to be well thought of by outsiders. We don't have a recorded fight on this. We don't have a recorded rebuttal or argument. We have a recorded description. That Paul picks Timothy up and he circumcises him. 
I think for the Jews in the area, this would have been huge. They would have seen Timothy associating with the culture. Not necessarily the religion. And it would have given him an inroad back to say when it was his choice, Timothy chose to be circumcised. He chose to associate with the culture. All right. If you've wondered how much someone can talk about circumcision on a Sunday, there it is. Let's move forward. Uh, Verse 4. As they were on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. This was the Jerusalem council that we talked about last chapter. Uh, At the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas split. So, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Paul... And Timothy begin this ministry trek when people are just being saved, uh, growing. The church is, is growing fantastically, and, and there's all these positive reports. Paul and Timothy have this heart for the Lord, but they're searching, they're pursuing, they're strengthening, they're encouraging. Uh, people are coming to the faith in Lystra, in Iconium. Uh, it's, it's incredible. For Paul, this would have been some sort of ministry uh, peak, mountaintop thing, where he... He sees all this stuff happening, and he's like, yes, I know where the Lord's leading. I'm following him. Here we go. Point number two in your notes. After obediently seeking the Lord and hitting resistance, God makes clear the next steps in their journey. I read that really fast. The two blanks are obediently and resistance. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia... They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. This, again, is a description that Luke's giving us. It's not intending to be a full explanation of everything that's happening. But join with me in the journey of Paul. He goes to Lystra and Iconium, revisits the stoning area, and watches the churches grow and brings Timothy along with him. And his purpose is to evangelize and plant churches and bring people to the Lord. And he attempts to go, and the Holy Spirit stops him. So he's like, okay, we'll go to another area. And the Spirit of Jesus stops him. For Paul, this must have been, in some regards, frustrating. That he, he's like, Lord, I'm being obedient, I'm following And I'm being stopped. So Paul gives us a little bit of an example. And he sits down in Troas and sits back and relaxes for a second. It's in this place where Paul ends up getting a vision. But I want to freeze us in this moment in time for just a little bit in this text. Uh... When I was 16, I knew that I was called to the pastorate. Um, the Lord revealed it to me, and I, I didn't like it. I think I've shared that story before. Um, but that's what he wanted. And eventually he broke me down and was like, be obedient and follow me and stop trying to run. And so I did, because that's what you do when the Lord asks you to do things. You eventually obey. Um, I was accepted into Biola University and was uh, privileged enough to earn my bachelor's there, but it didn't come necessarily by a free gift. It was my graduating semester. I shared this story with the youth a, a couple weeks ago. It's my graduating semester, and um, 
I, I had felt like I had been through. I, I took 18 units in the fall, six units during interterm, 20 units in the spring, and I was ready to graduate. Um, and uh, there's this uh, little stipulation of Biola, and it's called the writing competency requirement, um, which you think if you're about to graduate, you would be competent in writing, and you'd be foolish to think so. Uh, so I turn in this paper for one of the classes, and it gets sent back to me in April of 2014, and it says writing competency fail. Uh, and what I had already done was sent out graduation invites and planned a party, and uh, it was this moment where I, <laughs> I was like, Lord, what? Because I, I felt like I was, I was doing what you'd asked. I was pursuing uh, the education that I needed, and I, I walked toward what you wanted, and I thought that I had done everything right, and he, he took it from me. And I remember sitting in the dean's office two weeks before graduation, two, not two weeks, two months, um, and uh, he, was, he agreed to go over my paper with me, and so he we went over it, and he goes, ah, it's too late to turn it back in. And I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah, you'll have to turn it back in in the fall. And I was like, okay, but can I at least walk in graduation? He goes, no. Uh, and the secretary is standing in the doorway, and she goes, he sent out his invites. Uh, and the dean goes, I don't know. It's too late. It's past the deadline. And she goes, can you just force it through? Like, have two professors look at it, force it through, have him make edits, and see if it'll work. And he goes, I guess. You have a week to turn it in. Uh, so I turn it in, um, and uh, it was about two or three weeks later, in the middle of, again, a 20-unit semester where uh, it's pretty intense, and I'm finishing up and doing grades, and edited this paper, turned it back in, and I got an email that I had passed. And uh, I just felt the Lord re-release this thing and say, wow, <laughs> it's not your will, Okay. So when, when I call you, you'll move, and when I'm ready, you'll go. Um, funny side story, I, I had a professor I really liked there, and I talked to him a lot between classes, and I was walking with him, and you need a combined score of five to pass. And two professors graded on this scale, you need like a two and a three. And he goes, what was your paper on? And I told him, and he goes, oh, I gave you a two. I was like, oh. Thank you. And he's like, yeah, so-and-so gave you a three, so if you have Christmas cards, you should send them one. Uh, still haven't sent them a Christmas card. Uh, for, me, for me, that moment was this stop, this like, uh, this is a good thing. This is, I'm doing what the Lord asked. And in some ways, I think what had happened is I had become sovereign over my own life. I had, I had determined my steps. I had planned my path. And the Lord said, no, no. You don't get to do that. Uh, this past week, we had other stuff come up, and the Lord really pushed me and just said, I'm testing your grip on what you're holding. Are you holding it too tight? Even if these are good things. See, for Paul and Timothy, they were going into these areas to preach the gospel and to plant churches. What's bad about that? And the Spirit of the Lord stops them. And man, that must have been frustrating. Lord, they're doing ministry. They're, they're being obedient. They're walking with you. They get stopped. It's there in Troas in verse 9. It says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul just got his why all of a sudden. Why can't we go to these areas, Lord? How come we're being stopped whenever we try? And the Macedonian call comes up. Come and help us. People need to hear the gospel in Macedonia. Paul must have been so joyful at this moment, which is ironic because of where they're going. You'll see in a second. Uh, He must have been so joyful in this moment uh, to have clarity on direction. I think that as human beings, one of the things we obsess over is our direction and our future. Um, If you don't believe me, let's talk about retirement planning. Uh, and why that's such a lucrative business. We obsess over these things, and we think if we can just determine our steps and make just the right plans and plan out just the right amounts, and those of you who have been walking with the Lord a long time in here are probably already laughing because you know how that works. You've seen that work out. Uh, We know how the Lord works. We know that he doesn't always give us the whys, but that his ways have always been better than ours. And so it wasn't any different with Paul sitting in Troas, hearing the Macedonian call. Come and help us. Now, I'd like to point out something really subtle in the text. It says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, which, (laughs) good conclusion, Luke. Um, Something just happened in the text, and it's really interesting if you've seen it. But we just switched from a third-person plural to a first-person plural. Uh, Those of you who are struggling with grammar right now, it just switched from they to we. So they were doing this, and now it's we are doing this, which means somebody just joined the journey, and his name is Luke. Luke, the physician, just joined the journey. He gets to go down to Macedonia and preach the gospel. Some scholars have argued that because the, pro- the pronouns switched from a third-person plural to a first-person plural, that the guy in the Macedonian call was Luke. Um, problem with that, in my opinion, is that Luke joins them immediately and then goes down to Macedonia. And Luke is not really associated with Macedonia. Uh, he's associated with Antioch. So a uh, couple little issues with that, but that is a popular view that many scholars hold, um, which would explain the Macedonian call. Um, and the person, but I just think we don't get an exact person. It's it's simply a vision that Paul has. But Luke now joins them on the journey. Chapter 16, Luke joins the journey. Point number three in your notes, the church grows and continues to reflect the character of the Lord in their hospitality and their faithfulness. Grows, hospitality, faithfulness. I believe it is up on U version now too if you need to check U version. Good. So that should have the notes filled in. I think one of the most underrated things in the Bible is the uh the women women believers, the faithful women in the Bible. Uh in fact, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, you just get this list of people who were faithful with Jesus at the end. And it wasn't 11 of the disciples. It was the women 
who are faithful and by him at the end. Now we get uh, this first instance of this church being planted in Philippi. And who's named? It's a woman who's faithful and obedient as well. There's, there's another really cool thing in here that's a little subtle in the text I want to point out. I get a little nerdy and excited about these things, so uh, please humor me. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. Uh, anybody know what direct voyage means? Nonstop. Um, it means that the wind was at their back. It's a sailing term. That's really cool to me. Uh, because you see a stop and a stop. And then you see Paul interpret this Macedonian call that people need to hear the gospel. And they get in and they set sail and the wind is at their back pushing them. The Lord is blessing them in the middle of this journey and this direct voyage. Thank you for hearing me on that. It says, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in the city some days. Uh, for me, sometimes reading the book of Acts is like watching a movie and seeing the younger version of the older people where you're like, oh, Philippi. I know Philippi because of the book of Philippians. And so this is the younger version of the older people in the book of Philippians. We get to see the, the beginning of their journey. Uh, they go out to Philippi. It says, we remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. In Philippi, the women come down by the riverside and gather, and that's where Paul and Timothy meet them. I, again, want to echo, I think that there has been misinterpretation and abuse of, it's probably too strong a word, in some, in some ways, reckless handling of the Word of God at the New Testament. And I think that we need to understand that women do have a significant role in the New Testament. And you see that significant role here. Who are the faithful believers? It's the women who gather. Paul and Timothy didn't walk up to the, and Luke now, to the women in Philippi and go, oh, it's just the ladies. Never mind. We're just going to go somewhere else, I guess. No, they were like, that's the ladies we should minister and evangelize to them as well. They didn't see them any different. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia, we don't get much about her, but the significant details are that she's faithful that she has a soft heart and open ears, that she's there. At the end of the chapter, we see that her house is where they gather the people. Um, she's there. She's a seller of purple goods. And um, if you've heard of Lydia taught on before, you, you probably know that purple goods sales is lucrative because who wore purple? It was royalty. And so to sell purple of anything would be a significant lucrative business. Uh, Philippi, just as a little bit more background, uh, was very prominent in the purple dye business. Uh, they had a lot of access to um, 
the materials that they needed to make purple dye. And so this was a common business practice in uh, the city of Philippi. I think of um, Proverbs 31 and the woman described there and how she is working in business in some ways. And I think uh, what, a, what a good picture of Lydia a lot, uh, working out in this business of selling purple goods and faithful, listening, wise. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well. Lydia, and I... I just, I, the, the book of Acts is often descriptive and not prescriptive, so I want to caution myself as I say this. But I love seeing the descriptions in the book of Acts of people who come to the faith and get baptized. That immediate first step of obedience. And those of us who have been to this church for a while know how encouraging it is to see people in that baptistry get baptized. And just think, wow, we are connected in some way with the early church in that step of obedience, and that faithfulness. Just like Lydia did in her household, so God requires of us as well to take that faithful step of baptism. After she was baptized in her household, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I, I use the term reflect the character of the Lord in uh, point three because I think that that's exactly what Lydia's doing. She's reflecting the character of the Lord with her hospitality and with her faithfulness. Lydia has a house that she can welcome people into. And she says, you guys are traveling, you're preaching the gospel, you're doing the work of the Lord, please come stay. Please come stay with us. If you've judged me faithful, Luke's words where she prevailed upon us, like she won the argument. Um, And so they go there and they stay. And it ends up becoming an important home base for them because they're, spoiler alert, about to be thrown into prison. Um, So if you want to read ahead and see that for next week. uh, Sorry, Pastor Ron. (laughs) Uh, I'll just preach that sermon too. Anyways, um, (laughs) I, I, I love the character of Lydia in this story. I love her faithfulness. I love, I love her presence in where she is, down by the water, listening. I love her faithfulness to hear the word of the Lord, to believe it, to be baptized, and then immediately reflect the character of God in hospitality, because our God is a hospitable God. Uh, we think of hospitality often in what Lydia just did in opening her house, but I think hospitality is a wide array of contexts that includes welcoming and friendliness. Um, For many of us in this room, we don't have places where we can welcome a bunch of people into, like Lydia does. And that doesn't mean you can't be hospitable. Um, It means that our hospitality is showing people the love of God in a unique and personified way. How we talk to them, how we welcome them in, how we include them, how we communicate, our friendliness, our relationship building, those are all aspects of hospitality. 
Um, I think people feel, I almost said hospitalized, that's not the word. Um, People feel hospitality when others give them gifts in some ways. Uh, Baked goods or an extension of noticing and providing in that gap. I think that's hospitality. And Lydia had a house, welcomed people in, and was hospitable in that way. She prevailed upon us, and this becomes a key base for Paul and Timothy and Luke uh, in the rest of this story in Philippi. I mentioned how joyful it would have been for Paul to have been able to come to this place and have that direct voyage and get the why answered, and he was there. And Paul, when he writes a letter to the Philippians from jail, is just overwhelmed with joy. I I think of the significance of this moment in Paul's life as well, and his walk with the Lord, where the Lord just met him in a unique way, provided an avenue for the gospel, and people were saved yet again in a new and different way. Join me in application. We have three points here. Point number one, sometimes becoming all things to all men means revisiting some of your past decisions, whether received or chosen. For Timothy, it was circumcision. For you, it's not. I'm just going to be really clear. Um, But for you, maybe there's a past relationship hurt where somebody is not going to hear the gospel because of something you said or did. And maybe a gospel extension would be to apologize and show repentance, a true characteristic of a Christ follower. Bridge that gap. Become that all things to all men. I say received or chosen because sometimes you receive these past decisions from broken families and broken homes and It may not have been your choice to have life end up the way that it did. But what are ways that you can be all things to all men that by all means you might save some? Because that's why we're here. That's why there's breath in your lungs. Is because God's got a plan to reach the world through you in part. So how can you be obedient and faithful to that? Point number two, when the Lord closes doors, despite our obedience at times, let me, and I want to clarify that. Sometimes the Lord closes doors because it's a dumb idea. Um, And that's okay. Uh, In fact, we can all think back to when we were younger and think that those were some dumb ideas, and I'm so glad the Lord closed those doors. Uh, But sometimes we're being obedient and the Lord closes the door. And it's simply because it's not what he has for us. Or maybe he's testing our grip. He has bigger purposes and better plans than ours. If you don't believe me, think back to past relationships in your life. The Lord has bigger purposes and better plans. Past things that you had hoped for and wished for that didn't work out, that you can see clearly in hindsight, I'm so glad that didn't work out. The Lord has bigger purposes and better plans. 
Point number three, um, there's this theory of application that I'm working through with one of my uh, friends. Um, and uh, our theory, working theory, is that broad applications don't really bring direct impact into your life. You, I can give these broad statements and say, like, sh- uh, go revisit your past things. And, and some of you will grab that. But some of you will think, I just need something concrete. Like, have me write down something in my journal. That helps. I can do a, a very direct one. So with the youth, I've been giving three direct ones. I'm going to give you one, and hopefully a couple of these will stick and help min- have the Holy Spirit minister to you in your life in these ways. So number three, how do we reflect the character of God in our interactions as part of his church? Show hospitality to one person this week. Show hospitality to one person this week. For some of you, you have homes you can invite people into. And, and honestly, I am at times overwhelmed by the generosity of the hospi- hospitableness in this church, uh, where people open their homes and welcome people in and include and give um, in, in many different ways. But what are ways that those of us who may not be as hospitable can be hospitable this week? Include, welcome in, invite and extend that family of God in a little way. So just one person this week. Show hospitality to one person. It'll be a reflection of the character of God welcoming us into his family, going to prepare a place for us. True and proper worship should always be reflecting God's character. So how do we reflect his character in our hospitality this week? Pray about it. Choose one person. Reflect his character in that way. Join me in prayer. Lord, you are so good to us when we never deserve it. Uh, We are an impatient, rushed people who think that we know best, and we don't. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to, uh, to Paul and to Timothy and to Luke in this story, uh, for Timothy being able to reach people in Lystra uh, because of the wisdom you gave Paul to repair some of those bridges. Lord, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would inspect us and repair those bridges through us, um, that we would be in some ways, a reflection of your character and your love for us this week. Lord, there are a wide variety of uh, people in this room and and issues and problems, but you are God over all of it. Lord, you always work everything out for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord. So, Help us not to worry. Help us to rest in you. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.